Welcome to the podcast of the Hubbard Center for Southwest Studies at Colorado College. My name is Santiago Ivan Guerra, and I am the WM Keck Director of the Hubbard Center for Southwest Studies. First, I'd like to acknowledge the indigenous peoples and ancestors who lived and thrived on the lands where Colorado College and the Hubbard Center is located, particularly the Apache, Arapaho, Comanche, Cheyenne, and the Ute, on whose unceded territories Colorado College was founded. We sit in the shadow of Taba, the Sun Mountain, so named by our Ute relatives. We extend our greeting to all of our relatives in Indian country, but particularly to those in the southwestern United States, the U.S.-Mexico border, and northern Mexico. At the Hulbert Center, we stand and fight for racial justice. We believe that black lives matter, that no human is illegal, that we must honor the lives of missing and murdered indigenous women. We stand in solidarity with those that are marginalized, with women of color, with the LGBTQ community, with immigrants, and with all those who believe that our struggles bring us together in solidarity. Thank you, and stay tuned. Hey everyone, my name is Sarah Katsev and I'm the paraprofessional this year at the Holbert Center of Southwest Studies. You're listening to the first half of my interview with Melanie Yazzie. Melanie Yazzie is an assistant professor of Native American Studies and American Studies at the University of New Mexico. She specializes in Navajo and American Indian history, political ecology, indigenous feminism, queer indigenous studies, and theories of policing and the state. She also organizes with the Red Nation, a grassroots Native-run organization committed to the liberation of indigenous people from colonialism and capitalism. I'm so excited to talk to her today. Um, hi, Melanie. Hi. <laughs> so um, is it cool if I jump into my first question then? Yes. All right. Um, so what is your work like as an indigenous feminist and how does that transfer into academic work and kind of like how does American studies translate into indigenous studies? Sure, great question. Um, great, uh, almost like three questions in one, <laughs> which I love. I love those complicated questions. Um, so my work as an indigenous feminist actually started when I was a graduate student. And it started from reading books by, uh, I would say kind of like the second wave of native feminism that was uh, kind of gaining ground about 20 years ago, I would say at the beginning of the 21st century. The first wave was kind of in the 1980s and the 1990s. And um, you know, I, I trained under Jennifer Nez Bennettdale, who was part of that kind of second wave, I would say, of Native feminists. And at that time, it was the way that it was being conceived was it was mostly an academic kind of endeavor. So theorizing gender and sexuality as it related to um, tribal nationhood, iterations of sovereignty, um, critiquing uh, the way that culture and tradition within indigenous politics um, sometimes reinforces kind of heteropatriarchal and heteronormative um, power structures, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so that was kind of what was happening. Um, it wasn't until I started to become a serious community organizer in about 2012, so it was about eight years ago, um, that I started to do a lot more activism, that I realized that Indigenous feminism had a much longer history 
in uh, kind of grassroots spaces and that there was a much stronger relationship, I would say, between the academy um, and kind of boots on the ground kind of work. And so since that time, I've myself developed a really fluid relationship between how I write um, and how I write as an academic and then also like the types of things I assign in the classroom. So for example, this semester, um, I'm teaching our first year uh, master's cohort in the Native American Studies Department. Um, if people don't know, about like 80% of Native people who pursue graduate degrees are women, usually. Um, and so my entire class is women. And so I decided to just assign Native women <laughs> writers, mm -hmm. um, right, to try to like um, spark a conversation around this, because this is kind of where the field has been going. And so um, there's a really fluid relationship between the classroom, between like my research and my writing and my activism, I would say when it comes to, uh, indigenous feminism. So what's the work like? It just rules my life. Like mm -hmm. my cats do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think, uh, really like how American studies translates into indigenous studies has everything to do with indigenous feminism because indigenous feminism, this kind of second wave I'm tracing, um, within the last 20 years, really rose to prominence in the academy at the same time that scholars in a lot of different fields, including American studies, including indigenous studies, were starting to really understand and theorize indigenous histories, um, indigenous political struggles through settler colonialism, right? Understanding them as pushing back against, but also shaped by settler colonialism, which was kind of a newer way of understanding kind of like colonial domination, let's say, um, in a place like the United States. And so, um, when American studies at the University of New Mexico, which is where I did my PhD in that field, um, taught me was that, you know, what we're really trying to do is we're trying to critique power. We're trying to critique strategies of domination and oppression, um, whether they come along with imperialism or capitalism, settler colonialism, right, heteropatriarchy. Um, and that part of our project in American studies is something that's very much attached to social justice, again, kind of activist movements, the history of social movements against forms of domination, um, which usually come in various forms of state power. And so I learned a lot about that in American studies. And then, of course, because indigenous feminism was kind of interrogating um, kind of the formations of state power within indigenous political um, kind of work, um, and then also very much committed to the larger project of indigenous decolonization, it seemed there was a lot of kind of, what do you, what do academics like to say, cross-pollination <laughs> between these different spaces um, and these different communities at the time when I was earning my PhD. And so I think that where I'm at today, um, I finished my PhD about four years ago, I think is very much a reflection of the confluence of those things together. Um, so it's very much traverses the academy, it traverses outside spaces and movement spaces, um, but it also works across a number of different political traditions and conversations. Um, and I'm, I would say that indigenous feminism by and large is that's kind of where it's at at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Wow. And like, uh, I, it's, it's interesting to like, I guess, think about how Amer like how they tie in because I will, I guess this, um, like kind of building off of that is in American studies or at least in your American studies program, like was, there was there talk about decolonization was that like a big theme or do you see that more as being like the indigenous studies like route or like theory 
Great question. So I would say, um, so today, so I, t I had um, a job for two years in the University of California system before I was hired back at the University of New Mexico. So I did my PhD at UNM mm -hmm. in American studies. I now have a three quarter time appointment in Native American studies and a quarter time appointment in American studies. Mm -hmm. So I bridge, I kind of bridge the gap between those two um, fields and those two approaches. And I will say that um, in the, the American Studies Department here at UNM, um, just because there people like Jennifer Nesden at Dale, who's this kind of radical Native historian, we're in the department and there's a larger Native presence here on campus. Conversations about decolonization and like theorizing decolonization was quite prominent when I was doing my PhD in that department. However, I would say the primary difference between American studies um, or even like an ethnic studies kind of approach and then Native American studies like as its own department, as its own field and approach to knowledge production is an emphasis on kind of praxis. So Native American studies isn't just interested in theorizing decolonization, but is deeply committed to practicing decolonization mm -hmm. in all shapes and forms um, with all kinds of indigenous people and communities. Um, in fact, like our master's students are expected to do a project of excellence to get their graduate degree. So they're not just writing a thesis or a study. They actually have to go out and collaborate with people in community. Um, and then their entire project is a collaborative kind of community-based project. Um, and so that would be the main difference, I would say. And then also Native American studies doesn't just study power. So American studies um, often is like, Indigenous, the, the American studies approach to indigenous studies would be kind of understanding how settler colonialism works through law to deny tribal sovereignty, let's say. That would kind of be like that kind of project. A Native American studies project is much more about taking indigenous knowledge seriously and using indigenous knowledge as the basis for methodology and for theory. Um, and so it's part, it's one part kind of critiquing power um, and kind of, let's say colonialism, for example, um, but then it's also very much a project of how we utilize and invigorate indigenous knowledge to build vibrant and sort of practical projects for decolonization, mm -hmm. uh, which American studies isn't quite, quite in that space. So Native American studies, I, I would say, is much more committed to um, kind of a very praxis oriented approach to knowledge production. Whereas American studies can fit quite tidily within a very academic, I would say, approach to theory. Yeah, no, that, that totally makes sense. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the Red Nation and what you guys have all done and what you're up to. Yeah, that's um, also a big question. Um, so the Red Nation, I was in, I was in graduate school. Um, I was doing my PhD in American studies when we founded the Red Nation six years ago. So kind of fall of 2014 as when we founded the Red Nation. And the Red Nation came out of um, some of the work I was doing with other graduate students and then faculty members in American studies, including Jennifer Nez Dennett-Dale. Um, and we were starting to look at patterns of racism, discrimination, police violence, um, and just kind of like economic disparities in places like Albuquerque, Gallup, New Mexico, Farmington, New Mexico, reservation border towns, right? Um, and we were starting to work more with unsheltered, um, typically thought of as homeless native populations and realizing that there was actually um, the way that kind of people were thinking about decolonization at that time or indigenous politics 
wasn't really looking at indigenous people living in cities or border towns. Um, but then when we looked at the statistics, we were like, wow, like two thirds of native people live in these spaces and a huge chunk of those people are poor and working class, but they're not being captured at all in our larger con con political conversations about decolonization or about social justice. And so that was really kind of how the Red Nation was founded. There was also a really vibrant anti-police violence movement um, here in Albuquerque in 2013 and 2014. Albuquerque police had killed more people um, per capita than any other city in the nation. And I mean, police violence continues to be a, a very prevalent issue um, that anyone on the mm -hmm. left uh, faces in a place like Albuquerque. So that was kind of why the Red Nation was founded to kind of work with those populations and address those things. Um, we've done a ton of work since then. We've done a lot of work against police violence, um, racism against native people in border towns. Uh, we have done a ton of work against resource extraction, also protecting Chaco Canyon, um, trying to work with the Navajo Nation um, and the All uh, Pueblo, Pueblo Council of Governors, yes, the All Pueblo Council of Governors here in New Mexico um, to try to shut down fracking, to try to protect um, various sacred sites. And so we're very much part of, I think, what is often considered the environmental justice work as well. I mean, we were really growing when Standing Rock popped off four years ago. And so um, put a lot of effort into contributing to that particular uprising. So we've we've existed during a time when there's been a ton of kind of indigenous land based mobilization around resource extraction, pushing back against extractive infrastructure like pipelines, for example, um, struggles to protect sacred sites like Chaco um, and now struggles against border walls and, and things like that. And so um, we've really learned a lot and we've participated a lot in those types of things. And today, um, of course, the pandemic has really limited our ability to go out and I would say mobilize in person to a large extent, although we did participate heavily in um, the uprisings that happened this summer after George Floyd's murder in late May, uh, just because we mm -hmm. wanted to support the black community um, struggling mm -hmm. for defunding the police and other making other advances in Albuquerque. Um, but since then, we've we've grown immensely. We're quite a bit bigger. Um, I say we've actually grown about by three times over over the last year. We continue to get wow. new members. Yep. We have a real organization structure now where we kind of started out as just like a group of people sitting around a table <laughs> trying to figure out what to do. <laughs> we now have mm -hmm. um, structure and um, we're doing a lot of mutual aid. So the Southwest Freedom Council, we have several freedom councils throughout Turtle Island now. The Southwest Freedom Council is doing um, mutual aid distribution, PPE, as well as winter gear, um, and then also feeds, mostly for unsheltered relatives here in Albuquerque. Um, our Freedom Council in the Black Hills does um, patrols to prevent exposure deaths for unsheltered Native people and are also providing PPE and free meals for um, unsheltered Native folks. And um, our New York, our Lenape Territory Freedom Council in otherwise known as New York City has been participating in the Shinnecock camp that was erected, what was it, like a week or two ago? Um, mm -hmm. Close to there. And so we're doing a lot of, I'd say, like direct action stuff right now, like a lot of people have done with the pandemic. But one of the things that we have had a chance um, to do during the pandemic is a lot more political education work. So um, out of the Red Nation has come an imprint with um, kind of a radical leftist press called Common Notions. Um, 
and it's called Red Media. And so we're actually publishing our first book, which is The Red Deal. And so The Red Deal is, we can talk more about that because you had a question about it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The Red Deal is like a policy platform for climate change that we wrote last year. And then the book is a like a significant revision and kind of a more fleshing out of the ideas that we started um, and the things that we published last year. And so uh, we're trying to do that to kind of help develop the movement around climate justice and decolonization from an anti-capitalist perspective, um, but then also hoping that that book, as well as the other things that we're publishing through Red Media, are providing really solid um, kind of indigenous left analysis and political education for folks to become kind of oriented and then to center those um, in their politics, regardless of, you know, whatever political orientation they're operating from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. I'm, it sounds like all the work you guys are doing. I mean, it's more than I could even like find on your website, I feel like, because it's just so much of just like people organizing to help other people. Um, and it's yeah, it's just it's incredible. Um, and yeah, can could you tell me a little bit more about the Red Deal and like that that whole thing. Sure. So um, as I'm sure everyone who will be listening to this knows, the Green New Deal, right, um, was has become increasingly popular, I would say, um, on the left and then kind of with progressives over the last couple of years. And we were also, you know, inspired by the Green New Deal. Um, and But we sat down in early 2019. Um, and by we, I mean, it was, uh, we called together a coalition of organizations, movements, people, leaders, Um, to try to develop kind of a response to the Green New Deal. We felt that um, given the fact that, you know, AOC, who was one of the primary authors of the Green New Deal, had actually started her bid for Congress at Standing Rock, um, yet Mm -hmm. Indigenous kind of perspectives and politics were not as central to the Green New Deal um, as we thought they should be, especially given uh, kind of historically what Standing Rock represented for the climate justice movement we wanted to just center, we wanted to center indigenous politics um, as well as the agenda for decolonization much more seriously um, in thinking about things like um, fossil fuel, uh, you know, fossil fuel emissions, carbon emissions, um, resource extraction, climate change, mass extinction, the Anthropocene, right? All of these things that we're facing as a, as a planet, really, biodiversity loss. Um, and so we decided to get together and we worked rigorously to research um, to research and to write the Red Deal. Uh, and we came out, it came out in three parts, starting, if I remember correctly, like in uh, early fall of last year, 2019. Um, the last part came out right before the pandemic hit, like February of this year, 2020. Um, and it was really a lot of young Native people who spearheaded the call. Um, and so the Red Deal, it's really, it provides a platform for organizing that isn't about reform necessarily, and that isn't limited to electoral politics, which is which is still like an important form of political participation, as is kind of policy reform. But what we're really interested in doing is encouraging people to work from the bottom up to build movements um, rather than mobilize around single issues or kind of single figures like politicians, for example. And so mm-hmm. we've had, you know, experience, we've actually had pretty remarkable experience here in this region in the Southwest with organizing grassroots movements that have actually forced politicians to pay attention and then to make changes based on our mobilization, right? And so this model of um, people often talk from like the bottom up or like the grassroots level, 
But this idea of building movements and then forcing concessions from power, not because you're asking for it, but because they cannot deny the power that the people have, right? Because the Mm -hmm. movements are so Mm -hmm. strong. um, This is something that we advocate for as, you know, the primary vehicle through which we enact quote unquote policy um, in the Red Deal. And so the Red Deal talks about kind of socialist type reforms um, that are based out of movements, right? So free transportation. I mean, we try to cover the whole gamut of what would be required for people to live dignified lives, for everyone to have homes, for for everyone to have food security, right? For everyone to be able to have jobs where they can support their families, while at the same time putting together a pretty uh, aggressive, I would say, agenda for decolonization and indigenous leadership that we think is required in order to turn back Mm -hmm. the tide of climate change and, you know, save the planet from dying, (laughs) essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we're very serious about this work. We think that, um, you know, the the Red Deal has a lot to offer. Democratic Socialists of America actually adopted the Red Deal um, earlier this year, or maybe it was last earlier this year, um, and are having deep conversations about it in relationship to like, uh, ecological socialism or green socialism. I forgot what the term is. Um, (laughs) But the Red Deal has like, people have been reading it and really thinking through it thoroughly in the movement. So it's making its way into kind of conversations, which we're really, you know, happy about. Yeah, totally. I think that's, that's really amazing. And it's amazing to hear that, um, like, the Democratic Socialists have started talking about it. And um, I was also, so you said that you guys are, you're, you're working with a press, like, or you have a press of some sort, like a, yes, a book press. And so I guess this is just kind of like, if listeners or if people are listening to this, and they like want to read the Red Deal, how would they do that? Sure. So uh, we are just launching. So the Red Deal book will be out in the first week of April 2021. So in about six months, mm-hmm. um, it'll be our first publication. Our imprint is called Red Media. We're still even trying to figure out what our logo is, <laughs> but it will be with Common Notions, which is um, a Brooklyn based press. Okay. And so you can I don't know the, the Red Deal may not be up on their website yet but it should be soon, I think, once we finalize some other details. Um, but keep looking out for Red Media. We'll be talking more about it on our podcasts as well um, if folks want more details. But yeah, we'll probably start advertising for that in the next month, month and a half. Um, and I was going to say one more thing, and I forgot. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's okay. That's that's awesome. I mean, I'm, I'm excited to like pre-order it or whatever. Um, you know, get get a, get my hands on a copy, and then also I guess there you guys do have like a s- kind of more like simple breakdown of the Red Deal on your Red Red Nation website, right? We do, and actually yeah. you can the versions that currently exist, the three parts that we um, issued over the last year and a half, or the last year, sorry, um, you can actually access those on our website, and so you can download each one as a PDF and read them in their kind of shortened version. Of course, the book will be longer, Mm -hmm. but yeah. Oh, that's what I wanted to say. The plan, having an actual plan. I think what, you know, we get accused of a lot um, as activists is that we're, we're good at um, pointing out what's wrong, but we actually need to provide alternatives for Mm -hmm. people um, like real alternatives that don't reinforce watered down reforms that you know, may not ever actually affect the lives of people in any significant way. And so when we sat down to write the Red Deal, we wanted, we really wanted something that wasn't aspirational. We wanted something that was practical. Um, We're a very action-oriented organization. 
Um, I think oftentimes leftists can be very idealistic, sometimes utopian um, or very ideological and not very materialist, I would say. And so we were trying really hard to read the conditions that we live in and to try to develop a plan for action that anyone actually can can participate in from any kind of entry point, whether it's housing justice or um, land-based struggle for indigenous people, gender and sexuality, um, reproductive rights. I mean, a long list. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I feel like that, like, it could be, like, the platform for, you know, like, hopefully moving forward in the future, like, that, that the Red Deal will be, like, a big, um, I guess, influence or, like, part of someone's platform like you know what I mean like it like it's it's something really real and that people can like yeah yeah sorry I don't know if that (laughs) I don't know if that was just me rambling but anyways um you're fine (laughs) (laughs) thank you for listening to the first half of this interview in the second half we discuss indigenous land defenders fighting resource extraction and how that's tied to anti-capitalism You can check it out on our website or wherever you listen to our podcasts.